chapter 2. Don't worry. It's all in control. And if there's anybody who needs a Bible tonight, you can just lift up your hand and, uh, you know, we'll play Frisbee. Make sure you get one. Now, during the past several weeks, you can almost forget that we're studying Revelation. I mean, we've looked at these seven letters to these seven churches, and it's almost like reading one of the epistles of Paul. You know, all the instruction and, uh, you know, all the church-related matter that's, that's in them, you know. And you, you kind of forget that we're studying prophecy, right? That this is the book of Revelation. And, and, and you know, I've kind of seen that. There's kind of like been this kind of dwindling, like, oh, we'll come back when it gets to chapter 4, you know, and... You know, and, and some people kind of don't know where we're at. And so you could just tell them, hey, next week we're going to be in chapter four and, uh, you know, they'll, their, their interest will perk up again. You know, they don't want to hear about the church stuff, but they do want to hear about the second coming. And I can relate to that, by the way. But, uh, but here, um, a- as we are studying the book of Revelation, the book is by and large a study of prophecy. That's why it was given to John. That's why it's called Revelation or, you know, the apocalypsis or the unveiling, the taking away of the veil, something that was previously hidden that is now made manifest. That's the book of Revelation. And, you know, people are afraid of it. They're intimidated by it. But, you know, amazingly, and as we have seen and will see, the book of Revelation is is not that hard of a book to understand. It's the only book in the Bible that has the outline of the book given in the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 19, John is told to write three things. First, the things which you have seen, past tense. And we saw that chapter 1 was the things that John had seen, which is what? Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and glorified. The things that John saw and handled of the word of life and bore witness to in his gospel, and he testifies again in Revelation chapter 1, the things that he had seen. Number two, the things which are. What were the things that are in John's day? Well, John was writing in the church age. So, seven letters to seven churches. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the things which are. The number seven being the number of completion, speaking of the whole entirety of church stuff. And so, the things which are, church issues, all in Revelation chapters 2 and chapters 3. And then number three, write the things which shall be hereafter. In the Greek, it's the word metatauta. It means after this or after these things. And so from Revelation chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book, you have the things which have not happened as of yet, that, that, that it's after church time, the things which shall be hereafter. In fact, chapter 4 verse 1 starts with the words after this. It's the word in the Greek, metatauta, or after these things. So you know right where you are when you get to chapter 4. And then that section of the things which shall be hereafter breaks down. Chapters 4 and 5 is the church in heaven. We see the scene there. The church is there in heaven already. 
chapters 6 through 19 is the tribulation on earth. Seven years where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And that, that the, the, all of the sin of humanity is, is, is poured out in that time, Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And then chapters 19 through the end of the book, you have the second coming where Jesus comes back with the church. Satan is bound for a thousand years while the, you know, we rule and reign with Christ for that time that's called the millennium or the thousand years, the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. And then after that, the new heavens and the new earth, Satan is forever obliterated, the great white throne where the unsaved, mark that, the unsaved are judged according to their works. And then the new heavens and the new earth and we live with the Lord forever in eternity. It's really, it's just not a hard book to understand. You just follow the outline that's given and you go through it. And and it's right there. It's for us. Now, we've spent the last seven studies, the last seven sessions that we've had, looking at each of the seven letters to the seven churches. And we saw that these were literal, physical churches that had real people and real issues and, uh, and, 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 you know, they were addressed personally by Jesus concerning the things that they were going through. And, and it, we know it speaks of the whole church, the complete church, and it even applies today, the things that Jesus spoke to them. Now, for those of you that are maybe a little bit less versed in Scripture and in the various divisions of Scripture, the church, as we speak of in context of Revelation 2 and 3, of what we're doing here, the church, it it is a body of people that has a very specific identity within the Scriptures. The church did not exist prior to the first coming of Jesus Christ. At the creation, Genesis 1-1, when God spoke into existence and created them, there was no church. When Israel, and God was dealing with Israel throughout the Old Testament, there was no church. It was the Jews, Israel, God's people that he was dealing with at that time. When Jesus came and he, you know, called the 12 apostles and he began working in his ministry, there was still yet no church. Even the thousands that were following with Jesus at that time, there was no church. It wasn't the church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus spoke to Peter and he said, Upon this rock, I will build my church. Speaking of something that was yet for the future, yet to come. And it wasn't until the day of Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2 in the Bible, that the church was actually born. The day that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the 120 that were gathered there in the upper room, and then on the 3,000 people that gave their lives to Christ in that one sermon that Peter preached. And thus the church was birthed at that time. It started on the day of Pentecost. And the church, this body that has a specific purpose, will also have an ending point. It will end, the church age, if you will, ends at an event that's called the rapture or the catching away of the church. Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus spoke of the two that would be in a bed, one would be taken, the other one would be left. And two would be in a field, one would be taken. It's the event that Paul was speaking of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he said that we shall not all no, that's Thessalonians. It's when he you know, talks about how we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air in the twinkling of an eye. And then again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we'll be caught up 
to meet the Lord in the air. Harpazo in the Greek is where we get the word rapture from, to be caught up or taken up to be with the Lord. At that point, the church age comes to a close. And it has an ending point. It stops at that time. Now, from a prophetic perspective, the church age is dealt with in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, remember that when John wrote the book of Revelation, the church was yet young. He wrote it in approximately 90 A.D., and we now know that 1900 you know, years later and some, we're still in this time of the church age. The church is still around all this time later. So when John wrote it, the church was yet young. Now, keep in mind that after chapter 3, by the time you finish the letter to the Laodiceans, the church is never mentioned again in the book of Revelation. 19 times it's mentioned in chapters 2 and 3, but never again after that. You would think that if the church was around during chapters 4 through the end of the book, you would hear it mentioned, but it's never mentioned again after that time. But yet chapters 2 and 3 deal exclusively with this period of time that we find ourselves now in called the church age. Several years ago, someone was reading through these seven letters to these seven churches, and they realized and recognized that as you read through them, chronologically, in order, that there is an uncanny relationship between the things that it says in those letters and the things that have taken place over the succession of the past 2,000 years of church history. That there's a link, there's a relationship, that there's more being said in these two chapters than simply the specific issues that those churches were dealing with. There's a prophetic aspect to these two chapters. It was John being told aforetime, aforehand, what would happen throughout the time of the church age upon the earth. And, and, and it's revealed there. Now, it wasn't recognized until the end of the church age, because John didn't know that, that that's what he was being given. Well, maybe John knew, but he didn't tell us. It doesn't say there that this is what it's going to be. But as you go through and you read these things, it cannot be coincidental because of how closely it lines up with what actually has taken place um, you know, throughout the past 2,000 years, as the church has been the entity through whom God is dealing with planet Earth. Now, when we went through these seven letters over the past seven weeks, I didn't want to bring that out because I really wanted the the Lord to just speak to us to where we are uh, and to challenge us as to our, our own convictions and our own Christianity and where we're really at with the Lord. But tonight, I, I want to breeze through these seven letters. And don't worry, we're not going to like read them line upon line. You're like, oh, no, you know. But this time, I want to show you the prophetic precision with which Jesus laid out for us the things that would take place during the church age. And it's rather exciting because at the end, when we see where we are, there's really nothing to look forward to. I mean, we're we're at the end of the church age. Now, the first letter that John wrote, the first period of church history that is addressed there at the beginning of chapter 2 is the letter of Jesus that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. It represents the apostolic age of the church's history. 
The time between the death of Jesus Christ, or I'm sorry, the day of Pentecost, really, the the coming upon of the Spirit, and the death of John the Apostle, the apostolic age of the church. This was probably the healthiest season the church has ever had. Someone said one one time, I don't know why I remember this now, but but that, that from the moment a baby is born, it starts to die. And that's really depressing, but it's really true, isn't it? You know, that from the moment you're born, you start to die. And, and, you know, it's kind of been that way with the church. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it, and they won't. But the church was in its healthiest state on the day of its inception and during the following season. When we read the book of Acts, we see that people were being saved by the thousands at a time. That a two-minute sermon would be preached and 3,000 people would give their lives to the Lord. That a single miracle would be done, and 5,000 would be added to the Lord. Churches were being planted. The gospel was being preached in its purest form. People were repenting of sin. There was holiness and true worship, the joy of the Lord. The priorities and the order of the church was right and in line with what God intended it to be. It was common for people to pray at all various parts of the day and during the week, not just at a specific time or when they ate, you know, but people would pray and it was common. It wasn't a foreign thing. There was never a prayer meeting there in the early church where one person would do all the talking and everybody else would be like, I don't really know what to say. I don't really know what to say. But it was just it was just welling up inside of them to just call upon the name of the Lord in that way. We see multitudes of spirit-filled people. Miracles were common. Healing was common in that, that time. And just as we see in this letter to the Ephesians, everything was kind of in order. You know, their, their works, uh, their faith, their patience, their labor. They had a healthy immune system. They couldn't bear the people that were false. And you, you go through that and you just see everything of a healthy church. But where they went wrong, the early church, and not right away, but over time and by degrees, is that they, they forsook their dependence and their relationship with Jesus Christ. It, it tells us right there, it says that uh, in verse 4 of chapter 2, it says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. And that was the first thing that manifested itself. That was the first chink in the armor, if you would, of that first period and season of church history is that they 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 got into this mode of machine where it went from this glorious movement of god to where they had it kind of all figured out they knew how to do it they knew how to address issues and fix problems and you know kind of oil squeaky wheels if you would And this movement of god that was so pure and so fresh and that really had no dimension to it at all that was definable began to become a machine And it began to become encapsulated. And what always happens when a movement becomes a machine is that dependence upon the Lord begins to wane. Because you learn how to do it in self-sufficiency. And that was what happened at the end of the apostolic age. The fire had slowly begun to dim just a little bit. The movement was becoming a machine. The second letter that Jesus wrote to these churches, the letter to the church at Smyrna, is a letter that's written to the suffering church. Congruently, the second period of church history, or the time that followed the death of the Apostle John, was a period of great persecution for the church 
on the earth. This time period goes from about 100 AD until about 314 AD. From the death of John the Apostle all the way until the Edict of Toleration that was issued by the Emperor Constantine in Rome. When Jesus addresses the church in Smyrna, he addresses directly and singularly the issue of the persecution and the suffering that resulted from the persecution there in the church. He tells them specifically there in in verse 10 that they're going to suffer persecution and tribulation for a period of 10 days. It's interesting to me that during this period of time historically for the church, there was a succession of ten emperors that were all hostile towards Christians. There was, first of all, Nero, who was responsible for the death of the Apostle Paul. Domitian, who tried to boil the Apostle John in a cauldron of hot oil, but it didn't work. Ultimately, he exiled him to Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. Trajan was responsible for the burning of Ignatius. Marcus Aurelius killed Polycarp, who was the pastor at the church in Smyrna. There was Severus and Maximinius, Decius and Valerian, Arlurian, and the the worst of all in the 10th was this man Diocletian. However, ironically, though there was this period of great persecution that lasted over the span of a couple of hundred years, You would think that the church would grow weaker during this time. But on the contrary, the opposite took place. In this period of great persecution and trouble for the church, the church only grew stronger. Isn't it amazing that the church in its healthiest form on the day of Pentecost went somewhat backwards? And the church that was persecuted heavily and experienced trials and tribulation, they grew stronger. And no matter how hard Satan would try to persecute and to pummel the church into oblivion and absence, the church only grew stronger. Hence the words that Jesus gave when he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Though the persecutions became more severe and the emperors became more hostile, the church held their ground further. They dug their heels in harder and they followed after the Lord Jesus with all their heart. It's amazing how persecution has a way of purifying, causing Christians to seek the Lord diligently. But Satan, he's no dummy. The Bible says that he's wiser than Daniel. And though the church thrived during these periods of persecution and he wasn't able to put the light out, he changed his strategy somewhat by the time we come to the third period of church history. The old adage is true. If you can't beat them, what? Join them. Or maybe, you know, the other one is keep your friends close, keep your enemies even closer. And so Satan, not able to put out the light, squelch the lamp, if you would, by persecuting aggressively against the church, he sought now to implement a strategy of joining the church. If I can't beat them by beating them, then I'll defeat them from within. So by the time we come to this third period, Satan joins the church. The third letter that Jesus wrote to the churches, the church in Pergamos, the church moved from persecution to paganism. So you have the apostolic age first, then the 
persecution age second, and then the paganism age third. It goes from approximately 314 AD when Constantine issued the Edict of Toleration all the way to approximately 590 AD. And the reason it's called the period of paganism within the church is because the world at this time entered the church. The emperor that followed Diocletian, that most hostile of emperors towards Christians, was a man by the name of Constantine. And early on in his rule, Rome being somewhat weakened by this time and not the powerhouse that they once were on the world's stage, was faced with a battle. And as a young emperor and inexperienced, he was nervous, he was shaky, he didn't know if he was going to be able to defeat this enemy. And so the story goes that one night while he was out musing these things and contemplating his strategies, he saw a vision of a cross in the sky. And evidently he heard a voice and the words, in this sign, conquer. And so not knowing what it was, he inquired of his counselors, what is this, this this cross and in this sign? And he was told that there's a sect of Jews that are called Christians that believe in a Savior who died upon a cross. They're called Christians. And he said, well, bring me the Christians. And they explained it to him. And he put forth an edict that if he were to conquer in this sign, if he were to go and fight with this sign and this name, that Christianity would become the state religion. That it would be required that everyone in the state convert to Christianity. And thus Constantine went into the battle, and sure enough, he won the battle. And thus it was decreed that everyone must now convert to Christianity. This this sect that was once hated and persecuted against and abhorred, it is now required that everyone automatically join. And they won, and thus the beginning of what would become what is today known as the Roman Catholic Church. Christianity was no longer a decision that someone makes when they come to a recognition of their need for salvation because of their sin. But now it was something that was required. It was a mandate for all of the citizens to convert to this religion of the cross. And thus Satan joined the church. Now this presented a problem there in Rome. Because Rome had a long tradition of pagan rites and rituals. And religion that had its roots all the way back in ancient Babylon. And we don't have time to go through all of that and and uncover all the things that started in Babylon and then moved into Asia Minor and then ultimately were exported to Rome where they took deep root. But there's a great book if you're interested. It's called The Two Babylons. It's written by Alexander Hislop. And it's incredibly well documented. The the book carries a lot of authority and and esteem because of its uh, great research. But for those of you that have maybe a Catholic background or maybe you have family that is steeped somewhat in Catholicism, it's a great book and it carefully documents and traces the traditions of ancient Babylon and follows them all the way to Rome And tells how they were incorporated into Christendom and ultimately became what is now known as Catholicism. And it's a very interesting read. They took the feast days that they celebrated in Babylonian worship and they just made them Christian holidays. 
What was the winter solstice became Christmas or the birth of Christ. Jeremiah chapter 10 describes how that they celebrated that in Babylonian ritual. You'll find that interesting. Jeremiah chapter 10, if you want to see how they celebrated this winter solstice. The spring celebration, they called the Feast of Ashtoreth, where they would, you know, sacrifice to Ashtoreth, the fertility goddess, and give honor to Semiramis and Tammuz, the virgin with child, as they called it. Again, I won't go into the history, but you can read the book. But the name in the church just simply became Easter. Ashtoreth, Easter, it's really the same thing. They used bunnies and eggs in their you know, festivals and in their things, and it was brought right into the church as their celebration. We'll call it resurrection. The idols and the relics that even to this day are on display in the Vatican in Rome and known today as Peter and Mary and Paul and all the rest. These relics and statues actually predate the first coming of Christ by several hundred years. And they simply just changed the names. Zeus became Peter. Semiramis became Mary. Now, I'm not saying that someone who believes in Jesus Christ according to the Bible and calls themselves a Catholic can't be saved. But what I am saying and what the Bible would, would, would testify is that the Catholic Church as a system is not biblical Christianity. Now, the full expression of what Catholicism became is representative of the fourth period of church history and the fourth letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Thyatira. And it's the period that's called Romanism. The fourth period of church history called Romanism. The period that goes from 590 AD, and it really extends all the way until the end of the church age. And I'll I'll note that for you here, is that the last four of these churches now, the one that, you know, Thyatira, the one at Sardis, the one at Philadelphia, and the one at Ephesus, all four of the last four churches, the period of time that those churches cover goes all the way until the rapture. And it's interesting that it isn't until you get to the letter to the church in Thyatira that Jesus talks, makes a reference to his second coming. He tells them there in uh, chapter 2, verse 22, that he's going to cast those that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. A reference to that time that will come after the rapture, indicating that there would be those involved in the system that would not be raptured, but that would go into the tribulation. In chapter 3, verse 3, to Sardis, he says, If you don't watch, I will come on you as a thief, indicating that there would be that system in place. At his second coming. To Philadelphia in chapter 3 verse 10. He tells them I will keep you from the hour of tribulation. Or temptation. Same word. That's coming to try them that dwell upon the face of the earth. A reference again to the time of tribulation. But they would be kept from it. And of course Laodicea. They don't count because Jesus wasn't even in that church. He told them I stand outside. We'll talk more about that when we get to Laodicea. Now, in Pergamos, though, the third that we spoke of, Jesus addresses the infiltration of corruption. Paganism entered the church. The church and the world joined forces. He, he notes the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, paganism, the priesthood, being introduced to the church. But in the letter to Thyatira, we see what it ultimately became, this period of Romanism. He notes to them the emphasis on works 
taking the place of faith. That works were more important than faith. He speaks of Jezebel and the Jezebel spirit. Who? What did Jezebel do? She ordered the inquisition of Nabal's vineyard at the cost of his life. And of course we know the history of the great inquisitions and the Jezebel-like behavior that Romanism has played throughout the ages. He talks about the prevalence of promiscuity and compromise amongst those who called themselves Christians. Those that were part of the church in Thyatira. And again, time restrains us from going you know, deeply into all these things. But you find that the parallels are exacting. The things that took place and that are noted there by Christ. And notice again in verse 22 that those given to the system of Romanism, it says that they will be given into the tribulation. Now that brings up a great question and I'm glad you asked it. Can a Catholic person be saved? Can someone who is Catholic be saved? Well, look at Look at verse 24 there in chapter 2. He says, but, I, but unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, to those that are in Thyatira, those that are a part of that system by name, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. Jesus says to them that there there are those in Thyatira that do not hold that doctrine. And to them, he puts them at ease. And so I I do believe that there can be those. In fact, I know people. I, I am friends with and related to Catholic people that I would, you know, tell you absolutely, I know that they know Jesus Christ. They're a part of that system for whatever reason. They haven't come out of it for whatever God might be doing with them there. But they know Jesus Christ. They're in Thyatira, but they have not that doctrine. And thus it is possible for someone to be Catholic and be saved. Just because you're called a Catholic does not make you apostate or, you know, The fifth period, the fifth letter is to the church in Sardis. You say, oh, you went hard on the Catholics. Well, here we go with the Protestants. The fifth period and the fifth letter represents the period of the Great Reformation. It goes from about 517 A.D. And it, again, also carries all the way through until the rapture. This period of time starts with Martin Luther. That Catholic priest who, reading the scriptures, giving himself to wanting to know God, hungering and thirsting after God, he comes to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and his attention is arrested as he reads the words, the just shall live by faith. And in this system that was steeped in works and in rituals and that could never quite bring him to the point where he knew God, In a way that was real. As he read those words, it shook his inner soul. And there was something within him as he searched the scriptures and realized that the system is amiss. And so he took his 95 theses, his 95 errors according to scripture. And he went there to the the chapel door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he nailed there his 95 theses to the door. And thus the Protestant Reformation began as that nail was driven through the wood. The period of the Reformation started strong. 
Luther and Zwingli and the Wesleys and John Knox and John Calvin and the revival that swept across Europe and that part of the world and then spilled over into the newly formed America. In the period of the great awakenings that hit our country, and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney and D.L. Moody and later C.H. Spurgeon. And it was powerful as there was a returning to the word of God. The dark ages were over and people began to come to the Lord again. But again, the movement soon became a machine. And the machine turned into a monument. And the monument ended up, of course, in a mausoleum. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the first thing that Jesus says to this church that represents the reformers in the reform period, he says, you have a name as though you live, but you are dead. It's interesting there, the word name that Jesus uses in the Greek language is the word nominos, and it's where we get the English word denomination. And isn't it interesting that all of the great denominations have their roots in the period of the Reformation? But yet as we look at the monuments that have been constructed, these great stone cathedrals, by and large, not 100%, but by and large, that's all they are. They stand as monuments. The life has gone out of them. They've become nothing more than a testimony of what once was and what no longer is. They have a name as though they live, but they often lack life. In verse 3, Jesus counsels this church, these churches, these reformed churches, and he says to them, remember how you have received and heard. Remember what it was like when the word of God was rediscovered and the life of Christ was again given away and infused into the people. Remember and return, he says to it. And he even addresses their ignorance concerning end time scenarios. He says, if you don't watch, I'm going to come upon you as a thief. And I can tell you firsthand that as soon as you could find someone, you know, that that carries one of these names and you bring up the end times and man, the wall goes up, up. No one can know the day or the hour. I know no one can know the day or the hour. You know, but they don't want to talk about it. And Jesus brings that up. All characteristic of many of the Protestant denominations. And please, don't say he's bashing everybody. I'm not bashing everybody. I'm telling you church history. I'm dead a lot of times. I feel that way. Please, I'm not attacking. I'm reporting. Now, the last two churches in these last two letters represent the last day's churches. Number six, the church in Philadelphia. Again, the highlight of the seven. The true church. And notice, it's not called Calvary Chapel. It's called the church in Philadelphia. The church of brotherly love, if you would. What's the true church? They're spirit-filled. He said that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against the church. And it hasn't, because way into the end, the church is still kicking and alive. The true church is a place where brotherly love exists, where people prefer one another above themselves. It's a place where the people are completely dependent and totally reliant upon Jesus Christ. It's a place where there's absolute obedience to the word of God. It's not just heard and entertained intellectually, but it's received and lived out practically and truthfully. 
It's the church that Jesus said would be spared the coming tribulation. In verse 10, it says that because you have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation. It's the church that will be raptured, the true believers in Jesus Christ, depicted by loving one another, depending absolutely upon Christ, and obeying the word of God uncompromisingly. And he says those people, they're going to be raptured. They're not going to be here during the time of the tribulation. And then, of course, the seventh church that coexists side by side with the church in Philadelphia is the church in Laodicea. The apostate church, if you would, in the last days. The tares among the wheat that Jesus spoke of in the parable when he said an enemy sowed those that would look the same and seem the same. And by all outward observation, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but yet they're weeds. They have no nutritional value whatsoever. They're useless. They're the birds that Jesus said would lodge in the great mustard tree that sprang up from such a tiny seed. The birds in the parables always speaking of Satan's infiltration. And it's the only church, it's interesting that as you look at it there in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, it's the only church that Jesus addresses this way. He says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. In all the others, he says, the church in wherever, the church in Philadelphia, the church in Sardis, but here it's the church of the Laodiceans. It's their thing. They've got their own thing going over there, and he tells them straight up in verse 20 that he's standing outside. He says, I stand at the door and knock. It's the only church where he's already outside at the time that he addresses. Kind of reminds me of the story of that that man who so wanted to join this particular church. And so he went there dressed in the best clothes that he had, and they were tattered and dirty, and his appearance was, was ruddy and disheveled. And, and as he sought to you know, join, he applied for membership, but as they sat down with him, they found that he did not fit with what they were looking for in their church. And so they rejected his application for membership. They told him, get some new clothes, clean yourself up a little bit and try again. And so he did. He went out and he figured out how to get himself some new clothes and clean himself up. And he came back in again. But the second time they said, you know, sir, you just don't fit here amongst this. Try this. Go out and get a job and do something. Make yourself productive and then come back and talk to us again. And so he went out and Several months and years passed by and there was no word from this man again until the pastor of that church was going through his bank. And as he walked through the lobby of the bank, he saw the man on his hands and knees scrubbing the floor. And the man looked together. He looked happy. He looked healthy. He had a job. He was being productive. And the pastor said, hey, aren't you the the man who sought to have membership, fellowship at our church so long ago? And the guy looked up and he said, yeah. And the pastor said, well, where have you been? I thought you were going to come back and apply again. And he goes, oh. He goes, you know what? I prayed and asked Jesus why you wouldn't let me into the church. And he said he's been trying to get in that church for years and you wouldn't let him in either. (laughs) There's an inscription on the cathedral in Lübeck, Germany. It says this. Thus speaketh our Lord to us. Ye call me master, and obey me not. You call me light, yet you see me not. You call me the way, yet you walk me not. You call me life, 
yet you choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me might and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Very characteristic of the church of the Laodiceans. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. He doesn't say they wouldn't believe anything, but he says that they are given to these seducing spirits, these doctrines of devils, and that they would depart from the faith. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the last days, he said that that day, the day of Christ, shall not come except there be a falling away first. That there would be a time of apostasy at the end of the age when people would turn their backs on Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, that great chapter that's all dedicated to the second coming, when he would return. And he says these chilling words. He says that because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. It's the church in Laodicea in the last days. And these are all things that we see happening right now before our eyes. And and I don't know about you, just to be honest, but I see it happening outwardly and I feel it happening internally. It's a different type of a pull. It's a different type of a, of a spirit. There's something happening. And if we're not careful. But as we close, I want to give you two points of application concerning these seven churches and these seven periods of church history. First of all, just as this progression befell the church as an entity in totality throughout the period of the past 2,000 years, it can also befall a church individually, a church just like ours. Our church, where we sit right now, is very young. I mean, you know, we hear Bobby, he talks about how 15 years ago, the Lord put it on his heart, and and look what God has done, and God has done, and there's an incredible thing that God is doing here. But really, this church is very much in its infant stages, its early years. And just as a person changes with age, you know, I look at my kids and, you know, Hosanna's nine years old now. And I remember when she was two years old and I think how much has she changed from the time that she was two until she's nine. And I think, what's she going to be like when she's 19 and then 29 and, 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 and people change with time. And the same thing can happen to a church. I wonder if this church survives to be 50 years old, should the Lord tarry. I wonder what it will look like then. And really, the responsibility, not the responsibility, but really the outcome of that in a a great way falls upon us. Because what we give ourselves to now in this time as a church is going to reflect what the church becomes if it survives the test of time. Are we going to be a church that loves Jesus? That that's what we're about? That, that that's our, our drive and the thing that moves us is that when we come to church, we say like those men who were carrying their sick friend to just have Jesus touch him. And they said, sirs, we would see Jesus. 
Is that the cry of the heart as we come into this place? Jesus said that that would be the source and the life of the church. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And the life of any church is Christ because in him was life. That's what the Bible says. And that's where life is found. It's in the source in Christ. And if we as individual Christians are those that say, Lord, it's you that I seek. It's you that I want. That when I come to hear a Bible study, it's because, Lord, I want to hear you speak to me. I want it applied to my life. I want your commandment to be your enablement and your empowerment within my life so that I can go out and live the things that I'm hearing. I want to know you in a fuller and richer way so that I can bring glory to you and worship you. If that's the attitude in the heart of the people in this church, then in 50 years, this church will be fruitful and powerful. If we say like they did in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that we will continue steadfastly holding on as though the wind is ripping it out of our hands, but we're going to hold on to the apostles' doctrine, the word of God. We're not going to trade in the biblical pure doctrine of grace and the word of God for programs and for an enterprise. If we're going to give ourselves to fellowship, not just simple communication or acknowledgement but fellowship which means a deep intertwining and being in ground rooted with others where there's genuine concern and love for each other and a desire to be involved in each other's lives and to bear one another's burdens fellowship then in 50 years this church will be a place where love abounds and where jesus is pleased to dwell if it's a church that says we're going to give ourselves to the breaking of bread The sharing of communion, fellowshipping with Jesus, going below the surface. But we want depth and intimacy with God and with each other. And if we're a place of prayer, where we say, Lord, we come to seek your face. Where the time of worship isn't the thing that we have to endure so that we can get to the intellectual Bible study. But that the time of worship is the time where we lift up our hearts and our hands to the Lord where we're overflowing with thanksgiving for what he's done and what he's doing within our lives. And where our hearts are made right as we come back into that acknowledgement of who God is. Prayer. Then in 50 years, this church will be hot, fervent, if we hold fast. My prayer is that it is. Is that this place never turns into a machine And then to a monument. Because if it does, it will end as a mausoleum. A testimony of what once was or could have been. But it's an individual basis. And number two, as we close, did you know that just as these seven churches, these seven periods represent the whole, and they also represent the body here, they also represent what can happen to an individual Christian's life. You can start off having an apostolic experience with Christ. Man, the the power of the Lord is present. The, The fervency and hunger for the word of God. The reality of spiritual things. Man, it's real. It's powerful. But anybody who lives like that, well, you know you're going to be persecuted. You're headed into a period of persecution. People aren't going to receive it. They're not going to like it. And the temptation will be to give in then to paganism. Well, let the world in. We were to dwell among them. 
Paganism will become Romanism, compromise. And then denominationalism, a name, as though you live but you're dead. But it ultimately will end up, I believe, and I think every Christian will end up in one of two places, each one of us here. Either in Philadelphia, the place where you say, no, Lord, it's you. I'm seeking after you. I want to rely completely on you. I want to love my brothers and sisters. I want to give myself to the word of God and to obeying its precepts and principles. Or Laodicea, apostate. He stands outside. A former glory of something that once could have been or once was. My prayer is that each of us would burn hot with love for the Lord Jesus. That he would renew and rekindle the fire within us. That when we hear that trumpet sound, there's not one of us that's left behind or even standing in doubt of where we might end up. It's amazing to me that from our vantage point, we really are looking all the way back. You know, we look over these seven and we see what's happened in church history and we understand we're reading the revelation. This is prophecy. It was given to John as what would come. And here we stand on the precipice of eternity, looking back at all that's happened. It's exciting, isn't it? It's a testament. We are living in the last days. It's an exciting time to live. And as we see what's taking place within the church in the world, and also what's taking place without the church in the world, man, Jesus said, look up for your redemption draws nigh. My prayer tonight is that each one of us would make an honest assessment. What are our priorities spiritually, terrestrially on earth? What are we living for? Let's stand and pray. Father, we just thank you so much for... Lord, you said that you would tell us things before they happened so that when they happen, we would know that you are God. And as we consider these things, Lord, and look back over history and and, and just soberly realize where we are at, We're thankful. We're thankful, Lord, that you've revealed these things, that you've spoken these things. And I ask, Lord, tonight that for every person that's hearing my voice, me too, Lord, that we would be those that would again come to that place where we make you Lord of our lives. Where there's a hardness in the heart. Where there's perhaps compromise or a chasing after the wind or a forgetfulness of what really matters, I pray that even now, Lord, as we stand here in this place, that you would just wash over us, that your grace would come to life again within us, that you'd renew our vision of the cross. Not, Lord, that we would in this sign conquer, but we would recognize that in that sign you conquered sin. And you've made the way open where we can come into fellowship with you where we can know you in a real and living way within the veil, where we can hear your voice. You said we'd hear a word in our ear saying, this is the way, walk in it, where we would commune with you and have fellowship with you, that we'd know the secret place of the tents of the Most High. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would move us back into that place reignite the fire within us 
and let your love abound here, Lord. We ask you to come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.